Thank you so much for helping us hear the word of the Lord. It's a great privilege and honor for me to be back again. There are few places in the world where I have such great delight in the fellowship as I do at this place. And Gary, you are a magnificent host always, you and your staff, and I must publicly give thanks to God and you for your generosity and your kindness to us. It is a delight, an incredible privilege to be here to share of the living and life-giving word of God. Our text this morning is a fascinating text. This is only part of the story. There are some things in life that just don't seem to make any sense. In 1972, when my wife Ellen and I were students in seminary in Deerfield, Illinois, we enjoyed the friendship of many eager seminarians working hard to get through school just like we were. Just around the corner from our apartment, there was a delightful young couple with two lovely little kids He was a keen student, incredibly gifted, extraordinarily effective with a youth group in his church. This was the kind of family everyone knew would, over a lifetime of ministry, accomplish great things for God. To earn his way through school, our friend worked the night shift at UPS, United Parcel Service. One night, the worst tragedy imaginable struck his family as he was coming home from work at 3 a.m. A drunk driver swerved into his lane, slammed into his car, and killed him instantly. This was every seminarian's wife's worst nightmare. Here she was, a young widow with two little mouths to feed, the delight of her life snatched from her, and the prospect of a very uncertain future ahead. Now what would she do? Of course, we all tried to rally around her to console and comfort her, and the people in the church were incredibly supportive. This was a horrible experience, but to me, a young seminarian, This was not just a painful experience. It presented us, me, and many others with a serious theological dilemma. I could not help but ask, does God know what he's doing? Have you ever asked that? From the perspective of the kingdom of God, this made no sense to snuff out the life of this young man with such remarkable talent, such genuinely gracious and gentle gentle character, such a passion for lost neighbors before he had even reached his prime. What a waste. Think of all he could accomplish for the kingdom of God in the normal lifespan of 70 or 80 years. What a waste. This is how I feel when I read the story of Josiah. 
whether it is the version preferred, preserved for us in 2 Kings that we read, part of which we read, or the version in, in 2 Chronicles, what potential for greatness this man possessed. Oh yes, he did reign in Jerusalem for 31 years. That's a good reign. But he was only 39 when he died. By ancient standards, this was just below average. The average age of kings at their deaths in Judah was 44. But that doesn't really blunt the problem, especially when we consider that he came to the throne two years after his grandfather, Manasseh. Manasseh also acceded to the throne at a tender age. He was a mere child of 12, a child of the good and godly Father Hezekiah. But he reigned 55 years. On the surface, that looks like a good thing. 55 year reign. But, according to the biblical record, Manasseh pursued a policy of apostasy and evil more aggressively than any other king of Judah before him. In fact, according to 2 Kings 21, the only significant achievement of this man was the depths of evil to which he dragged his people. Deeper even than the wicked Canaanites whom the Israelites had displaced. You see that in 2 Kings 21, 2, 9, and 16. Manasseh's son, Ammon, succeeded him, but he continued the policies of his father. When men from his own palace assassinated him two years into his reign, the citizens of Judah rose up in defense of the house of David and crowned Ammon's king, Josiah, Ammon's son, Josiah, as king. That's hopeful. At least the people are on the side of a good man at the tender age of eight years old. Eight years, a child, really. But demonstrating the truth of Ezekiel 18, that no one is a victim of his or her family of origin, Josiah quickly established himself as an extraordinarily righteous and godly king. According to 2 Kings 22.2, this eight-year-old boy chose his great ancestor David as his model, even more emphatically, according to 2 Kings 23-25, his piety and fidelity to the Lord exceeded all the kings of Judah and Israel, including David. And it certainly exceeded that of his own children and grandchildren who again proved the truth of Ezekiel 18, that no one is a victim of their parents' righteousness. They all went off track. We hear from Jeremiah the following concerning Jehoahaz, his successor. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbors serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house and spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion? Do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father 
eat and drink and do justice and righteousness. That's an interesting collocation, talking now about Josiah. Didn't he eat and drink? What's that? That's an, an idiom for engage in the normal activities of life without thinking. It's what you do. Eat and drink. Didn't he eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? For Josiah, doing justice and righteousness was as natural, as native as eating and drinking. Then it went well for him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it went well. Is this not what it means to know me? The declaration of the Lord. That's interesting. It's not creedal statements. It's not dogmatic assertions that are proof that we know Yahweh. But you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, Jehoah has, for shedding innocent blood and for practicing oppression and violence. In this upside-down world, Josiah was a truly godly king who embodied and modeled covenant righteousness as called for in the paradigm of kingship outlined by Moses in Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20. If ever there was that kind of man, Josiah was the one. But here lies the tragedy. Mounting his throne at the age of eight, he had the potential not only of outliving his grandfather Manasseh, he ruled for 55 years. Well, Josiah was even younger. He could have lived, ruled for 65 years. But no. That would have given him plenty of time to undo the effects of that wicked man's reign. But no, in the prime of his life, he died the victim of an Egyptian arrow. During the reign of Josiah, we witness a revolution in the, ancient, in, the, in the Near Eastern political scene. Not only was Josiah's world ethically and morally and spiritually upside down, but the world was turning upside down politically. The Assyrian Empire was on its last legs, and the Babylonians under Nabopolassar were taking over the historical stage. And when the Egyptians, who had been the inveterate enemies of the Assyrians for centuries, opportunistically, Pharaoh Necho did an about-face. Coming with his army from Egypt up the coast of Palestine toward, to go to Carchemish, where he hoped to lend support to the, his enemies, the Assyrians, against the Babylonians. Well... Nico was no threat to Josiah at all, but for some unspecified reason, you know the story, Josiah marshaled his troops and headed north through the Assyrian province of Samaria. That was not part of his kingdom. He was king of Judah. This was Assyrian territory, but he headed with his army through Samaria and tried to intercept the Egyptians at Megiddo. 
claiming to speak with divine authority to Chronicles 35, 20 to 25. Pharaoh, Nico, warned Josiah, do not interfere. What have we to do with each other, O king of Judah? I am not coming against you today, but against the house which I am at war, with which I am at war. And God has ordered me to hurry. Stop for your own sake from interfering with God who is with me so that he will not destroy you. Who's talking? It's the Pharaoh of Egypt talking. He warned them not to in fear. God was behind his campaign. Well, in all fairness to Josiah, <laughs> I suppose we could ask, how should he know that in God's province, providence, the time had come to remove the Assyrians and replace them with the Babylonians? And this would inhibit that aspect of the divine plan. The Babylonians would play a critical role in Judah's affairs in the coming decades. And it was necessary for God to have on the throne of the empire somebody whose policy toward captive nations was different from the Assyrians. And so he's bringing the Babylonians. And here Josiah tried to stop the the antagonist of the divine agenda. How would Josiah know all this? But he refused foolishly to listen to the Pharaoh, and he uh, sent his troops into battle. Well, it's as if the author has placed the good king Josiah in this story in the same category as the wicked king Ahab. When you read about how he met his Waterloo. However, Josiah would not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to make war with him. Nor did he listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, and came, but came to make war on the plain of Megiddo. The archers shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am badly wounded. And of course, it was badly wounded. He died. That's almost a ditto, a duplication of what happened to the wretched king Ahab in 1 Kings 22. How in the world can the narrator paint these two characters with the same brush? Especially since the chronicler's evaluation of Josiah is exactly the same as the author of Kings. It is, it is incredibly and unreservedly positive perhaps or even more seriously, in view of Huldah's prophecy, did you hear it? That Josiah would, that the Lord would gather Josiah to his fathers and he would be gathered to his grave in peace. Shalom. A typical Hebrew idiom for a favorable death and burial. Well, this does not look like a peaceful death or burial to me. Now, the use of the word shalom in this context demonstrates actually how ill-founded is Nicholas Waltersdorf's understanding of shalom. He says shalom means flourishing in all its dimensions. <laughs> Josiah went to his grave in shalom. 
doesn't look like flourishing to me. How shall we explain this? It strikes me that the passage that was read at the outset may hold the keys to this remarkable young man's fidelity to the Lord. But it was not, it was not merely his external demonstration of commitment to the covenant. It was the internal character of his heart that uh, really fascinates me. Perhaps that's where we should look for the answer to why Josiah was the kind of person he was. And there are some brilliant ironies in the results. Well, let's try to answer this, uh, answer this riddle. Why was Josiah a man who embodied covenant righteousness, our theme for the week? Why was he such a, a positive character? Well, uh, I'll try to answer that riddle with three questions. First, what kind of heart did Josiah have? Second, what were the evidences of this heart toward God? And third, what was the reward? First question, what kind of heart was it that drove Josiah? Many of us are aware that the Hebrew word lave doesn't refer only to the physical organ in the body that pumps the blood throughout or keeps us alive. Or even we are aware that the heart is the seat of emotion. But the Dictionary of Classical Hebrew rightly has as its first definition of lave, mind. Thinking, intention, understanding, and then feelings, will, inclination, disposition, personality. Did you ever notice that the Bible doesn't have a separate word for the brain? It is the lave that thinks. Out of the heart come the thoughts. Every thought of the people was only evil continually. We read this yesterday in Genesis 6. At least 50 time, 50% 50 of the time in scripture, that word lave refers to the seat of thought. And the other 50 it's the seat of feeling, commitment, passion, and emotion, and devotion. Well, the author of Kings refers to Josiah's heart. Now you understand. This is not just heart. It is the inner being, the seat of all of that from the inside out. He, uses, he refers to Josiah's heart three times. 2 Kings 22, 19. Because your heart was... Hmm, the translation we had was off track. Sorry. The text says literally, your heart was tender. His heart was tender. Well, what does it mean? And you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants that they should become a desolation and a curse. Curse, And you have torn your clothes and wet before me. I have heard you. The declaration of the Lord. That's one text. 
2 Kings 23.3. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk with the Lord and to keep his commands and his covenant stipulations and his ordinances with all his heart and with all his being. Usually translated soul. To perform the words of the covenant that were written in this document. And all the people signed on to the covenant. 2 Kings 23.25. The narrator says, Before him there was no king like him who turned to Yahweh with all his heart and with all his being and with all his resources according to the entire Torah of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. That's quite an epitaph. In 2 Kings 19, the prophet Huldah spoke for God when she characterized Josiah's heart as rack, tender. This word is used elsewhere of a choice and tender calf. Ideal for butchering of a tender, fresh growth of cedar, uh, Ezekiel 17, of a wound softened with oil, Isaiah 1.6, or in a derived sense of soft and gentle words, Psalm 55.22. When used of the heart, it would be the opposite of a heart of Stone that Ezekiel talked about in 36.26 or the stiff, hard heart of Pharaoh in the Exodus story. This is the opposite. In contrast to these hearts, Josiah's heart was responsive to the mind and the will of God. Just like a tender sprig is responsible, responsive to a gentle spring breeze. Josiah had demonstrated this sort of responsiveness in 2 Kings 23, 1-3. By immediately, after they'd found, he had heard the Torah read to him, he gathered all the elders and the people of Jerusalem to the temple where he read the entire scroll of the covenant in their hearing. I wonder how long that took. Probably three hours. That's how long it took Ezra to read the Torah of Moses, which I take to be Deuteronomy before the people, from uh, morning till noon. Then he publicly made a covenant before the Lord to do his will and to carry out the words of the covenant written in the book with all his heart and with all his being, which leads to the narrator's evaluation in 2325 of Second Kings. Here's an obvious echo of the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4. If I had interpreted the words traditionally, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, you would have recognized this. This is the only place in all of scripture where you've got this collocation of these three words in one place. And Josiah is the only person in scripture of whom it is said that he lived out the Shema. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. You shall demonstrate love for Yahweh your God with all your inner being, with your whole body, and with all your resources. I interpret this as three concentric circles, starting from the inside 
completely committed to the will and the mind of God on the inside with your whole body, nefesh, usually translated soul. But souls don't sin, people do. The soul that sins, it shall die, nefesh. In fact, there are some places in Scripture, in Leviticus, where this word nefesh is used of the corpse after the spirit, the breath, has left. (laughs) Nefesh here, I think, means with your whole body, your inner being, your whole body, and then with all your resources. A strange expression. If I would translate this literally, it would be, and with all your very. The word is ma'od, which is always an adverb. This morning we could have greeted each other with good morning. And if you want to say very good morning, simple good morning is bokatov. We could have said bokatov ma'od. It's a spectacular morning. Very good. The word occurs hundreds of times in scripture, always with that sort of sense, as an adverb or Uh, But here, in these two texts, it's obviously a substantive. It's a noun. I have no idea what a very is. You shall love the Lord your God with all your very. This happens only in these two places, the Shema and the application of the Shema to Josiah. Well, what does it mean? Well, I have a theory about this, and the clue comes from extra-biblical texts because this root shows up in Akkadian and in Ugaritic as a, substan- uh, as a substantive referring to one's wealth, one's property, one's resources. And of course that makes absolutely perfect sense. You shall love the Lord your God with all your inner being, with your whole body, and with everything that has your name stamped on it. It all belongs to God, nobody else. Nothing left over for any other gods. This is a remarkable statement. He turned to the Lord with everything he had. His books belong to God. His computer belonged to God. His house belonged to God. And if you're a farmer, his tractor belonged to God. Everything belongs to him. Nothing left over. And of course, even while Josiah is embodying that kind of covenant fidelity, he also is modeling Paul's plea in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world, which means stuff left over for other gods, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? These statements speak of full-bodied, wholehearted, total, unreserved commitment to the Lord. This is the kind of heart Josiah had. Totally committed, more than any other king in the history of Israel, more even than David. Here's a man with a circumcised heart. Here is a man 
who has a mind and a will, soft towards God, pliable in his hands, and sensitive to what he asks. Well, what were the evidences of this heart? We've seen some of this already. What, what do people with a tender heart look like? Well, from Josiah, I see three or four characteristics uh, demonstrate, uh, that demonstrate this. First, people with a tender heart demonstrate this in action. In our world, we often say, don't judge me by what I do. God judges me by my heart. God looks on the heart. I'm sorry. That is a blatant heresy. You are what you do. You are. We are. I should use a first person. <laughs> we are what we do. Josiah did the right thing in the sight of Yahweh. He walked in all the ways of his father. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. That's action. Which is why Abraham Malamat says we should never translate the Hebrew word ahav, love, with a single word. It should always be two words because it's always action. You shall demonstrate love for one another. Have you read 1 Corinthians lately? It's all about demonstrating. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not, and do not demonstrate love, I'm a noisy gong. Well, Josiah did the right thing in the eyes of the Lord. Interestingly, there's the, always the article on that expression. He did the right thing in the article. It's not, he did right generically. But already based on Deuteronomy and the practice in the book of Judges and elsewhere, doing the right thing means being completely devoted to the Lord and demonstrating love for him and rejecting all other gods. It's always about the first and great command. A tender heart is not demonstrated in flowery or pious words or signing creedal statements. Josiah never bragged about loving God or about being devoted to him. He let his actions do the talking and others do the interpreting. Jesus said, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander arise from the heart. The same is true of righteous actions. Josiah proved his devotion to God by removing his grandfather's idols from Jerusalem, refurbishing the temple, promoting the worship of the one true and living God throughout the land. And in the course of the reform, the, the, the people, uh, in, in the course of refurbishing the temple, they discovered the Torah scroll, and even the priest didn't know what this is. Look what we found, a scroll here. <laughs> what is this? And they found the scroll. Josiah had it read and he listened and that turned to be a significant point in his life in his response to this discovery we see other marks of a tender heart so first a tender heart is demonstrated in action second not valentine's day card we had a uh, when i started teaching in you know 1970 Three at Providence College in Winnipeg. We had a Bible study going on at our house, and we had a, a, a couple of 
car salesman in the study. So we always, uh, we always started at 9 o'clock in the evening because that's when these salesmen were off. Their business was in the evening. We started at 9 o'clock, but there was a guy in this who had been a, used car, who had been a car salesman. He, he set up his own jewelry store. He was an amazing guy, lovely guy, funny character. But he told me one time, the worse marriages are, the better his business. It's like the notes in the preacher's mar uh, manuscript margin, weak point, shout loud. No, it's not in the roses. It's not in the, I'm not saying that's irrelevant, but that's not it. Every day is Valentine's Day. Every day. People with tender hearts live out that. Second, people with tender hearts right recognize the scriptures as the word of God. This was, this was Josiah's response. In our context, this document is identified here as the scroll of the Torah. Uh, your translation had book of the law. Or the scroll of the covenant, book of the covenant. What's that? Well, the scroll of the Torah must be that book that Deuteronomy 31, 9 to 11 says it contained Mo Moses recorded and, oh, we should change the order, proclaimed and transcribed messages to the Israelites on the plains of Moab. And this, these are contained in the book of Deuteronomy. That's the scroll of the Torah. Elsewhere, it's also called the scroll of the covenant because the book of Deuteronomy is such a covenantal book. But when he heard this scroll read to him, he knew these are the words of the covenant that the Lord charged Moses to make with the descendants of Israel in the land of Moab. That's a mark of a tender heart. If you don't have that heart, you don't recognize the scriptures as the word of God. Simple as that. Third, people with a tender heart accept the message of the scriptures as authoritative. And they respond appropriately. Josiah tore his clothing, wept before the Lord, whose voice he heard in the scriptures. Josiah charges officials to seek further word from God, even to intercede on behalf of himself and his people, knowing that if no further word comes, their doom is certain. Josiah did all he could to get his people back on track so they might enjoy God's favor as he had promised them. You know all the things that Josiah did. He invited them to join him in this covenant recommitment ceremony that we read right at the end. And the people signed on. He purged the temple and its entire land of all things idolatrous. He extended the scope of the purge to the, what had been the northern kingdom of Israel. He led the whole nation in celebrating the defining festival of Passover with enthusiasm and grandeur unprecedented since pre-monarchic times. 
and he eliminated all agents of divine revelation according to Moses' instructions in the Torah school, presumably Deuteronomy 18, 19, 14, all the witches and wizards and sorcerers he got rid of. These are the marks of a soft heart toward God in an upside-down world. This is all part of embodied covenant righteousness. Well, if that's what he did, what did he get for it? What was his reward? As we know from our experience, you cannot legislate revival and spiritual renewal. And as soon as Josiah was gone, everything went back exactly where it was, and it got even worse. Hulda was right. Within two decades, the southern kingdom would be, or three decades, the southern kingdom would be gone. His own son, Jehoahaz, started the, the downward skid, and then came Jehoiakim, and then Jehoiakin. I love these names. By the hair of my chinny chin chin. <laughs> and then, of course, the worst, Zedekiah. All rotten to the core succeeded Josiah. He had, we can't legislate righteousness for our children. We would like to, and our grandchildren, and we weep when we see the decisions they've made, but they will go their own way. All, all of his descendants had horrible deaths. None of them was buried properly. But Josiah had a proper burial. Yes, he was killed, the victim of an Egyptian arrow. But what did they do? They took his body home to Jerusalem and they buried him. And do you know who wrote the lament over his death? The chronicler tells us it was Jeremiah. I would love to have a copy of Jeremiah's lament over the death of Josiah. I'm sure it was inspired by God, but it hasn't been preserved for us in the scriptures. But here is a man who actually did grow, uh, go to his grave in shalom because it's what the grave represented for him. Which leads to one more thought here. There's another dimension to this story. In Genesis 5, 21 to 24, we read of another righteous man who was totally out of step with his times while the rest of his human population was became, becoming ever more decadent, igniting the fury of God and leading ultimately to their destruction. Enoch walked with God and God said, come home. You're more at home with me than with them. An incredible war. This is what happened to Josiah. Just as in Enoch's day, the fate of the race had been sealed. And so in the days of Josiah, the Lord had written on his calendar the horrific events of 586, the death sentence of the people. 
Nothing Josiah could do to impose religious orthodoxy from the top could or would change the fundamental rot in the people's hearts. In the kind providence of God, the engagement with the Egyptians at Megiddo became became the means of rescuing Josiah from the horrors to come. I'm so glad he didn't have to see what happened to his sons and his grandson. Neither Nico nor Josiah could halt the nation's rush to their doom. Though Josiah died, God spared him the horrors as he had done for Enoch. The Lord said to Josiah, come home. You belong with me, not with them. Well, by now, we're wondering, what has all this got to do with us, this historiographic, boring stuff? And, of course, the answer is plenty, isn't it? What lessons are there for us? And, of course, we do know that the the supreme demonstration of the man with a tender heart is our Savior himself. The perfect embodiment of Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20. But here is Josiah who does the good in the eyes of the Lord, but who is totally marginalized by the the society. In an upside-down world, he is a righteous man. A person with a tender heart toward God embodies covenant righteousness and is driven first and foremost concerned for the glory of the great name that he bears. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Everywhere we go, we bear the name of our Savior. Second, a person with a tender heart toward God is committed to covenant righteousness, never dismisses the word of God, never stops it from interfering in his life. (laughs) That's what we need. We need to let the scriptures interfere. Third, a heart that's tender toward God is committed to a covenant righteousness by bowing before God, pleading for mercy, demonstrating utter subordination to his will. And finally, Josiah could have said, my fate is secure. Hold a promise me. I would go to my grave in peace. I can live like I want. Every promise in the book is mine. But not so. Josiah never took for granted the grace of God. When a heart that is tender toward God hears the word of God, it never asks, do I have to? Rather, it always asks, is this all? In view of what you have done for me, you ask so little of me. This is what we have in Christ. It always asks, is there anything else you, O Lord, want me to do? I close with the words of the Charles Wesley hymn. Oh, for a heart to praise my God, a heart from sin set free. A heart that always feels thy blood so freely shed for me. 
a heart resigned, submissive, meek, my dear Redeemer's throne, where only Christ is heard to speak, where Jesus reigns alone. A humble, lowly, contrite heart, believing, true, and clean, which neither life nor death can part from him who dwells within. A heart in every thought renewed and full of love divine, perfect and right and pure and good, a copy, Lord, of thine. Thy nature, gracious Lord, impart, come quickly from above, write thy new name upon my heart, thy new blessed name of love. May God do that transformative work in us. This recording of QTC Chapel is made possible with the support of our generous financial partners. If you have found this podcast helpful and encouraging, would you please consider partnering with us? For details on how to do this, visit www.qtc.edu.au and click on Support QTC.